Welcome to Don't Quit Your Day Job. Uh, we are advising not to quit your day job until after you get your stimulus checks right now. Uh, my name is Paul. I am your host. And today I am back with Mr. Mark Tremalgia, a guitar player out in California, where all the hippies are, I think, right? Is that right, Mark? Lots of hippies. Lots of hippies. <laughs> Uh, so we're going to get into some touring stories here in a second, but I wanted to start with something more basic. Mark's been out in L.A. for for many, many years now doing lots of different stuff. And I wanted to ask some questions about session work and how you, because as you establish contacts with with players and bands and stuff, how do you, how does one get involved in doing session work or is do you have to like, get management and then do it? Or how does that work? Oh, uh, you know, I mean, the, the times are so different now. So it's, it's, it was a certain way and, you know, and there's always routes in that people can take, but I mean, generally speaking, you know, you, you network, you meet other musicians that, that, you know, play at a club like the baked potato. That's where kind of the session cat guys go and they have jam nights there. And then you meet somebody and then they say, hey, you know, you want to come in and play on something? And you go in and hopefully you play well and you make the song sound better. You play for the tune. And then they give your name out to more people and more people may want to hire you or you might not get any calls altogether. You know, I mean, it's it's, it's just like trying to be a, a, a rock star musician guy. You know, it's like you're trying to just get inroads with the people that know. Okay. And and and. You know, there, there was a guy out here for years, and I think he still does stuff. His name was Barry Squire. Um, I know he's on Facebook, and I know he still helps place musicians in touring bands or in recording sessions, you know. And he was one of the main guys. You'd go to him, and, you know, he would have to hear from you or have somebody recommend you. And if, if he did, he would help you find gigs if there was something out there, you know. So it's, it's, it's that kind of networking thing right. that... A lot of us like introvert musicians kind of hate, you know, like I just want to like have an easy way in, but there's really no easy way in. You kind of have to do that, that social thing and play out and then be invited into that circle is really it or have a friend that can get you in that circle, you know, and that's eventually how kind of things get done too is, you know, hey, I know this guy, he's super cool guy. You know, he may not be Eddie Van Halen, but he'll get the job done. Okay, come on in, you know, so. <laughs> there is sort of an open secret, especially back in the late 80s, early 90s, that lots of these rock guys didn't actually play guitar on their records. Um, so famously, I've I've heard and read about Warren. I've also heard about Whitesnake, where, where someone would come in and... and fix a bunch of stuff, whatever fix means, like replay parts or whatever. Um, but do you know about any of that stuff firsthand? Is that, was that your experience back then? Sure. Sure. That was always a fear of every band too. I mean, even, you know, in little Caesar, the drummer, I mean, whoops, I probably shouldn't be saying this, but like he, there was a few tracks on the first record he didn't play on, you know, they, they had another drummer who, who did, did the gig. Um, but there's, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, Fred Curry from Cinderella, who is actually a phenomenal drummer, but for whatever reason, the studio thing is not his gig, or, you know, maybe Tom Kiefer has a guy he writes with who plays drums, and he wants to use him, you know, that, that happens a lot, too, where you're comfortable with certain guys, but like Fred Curry, that guy plays great, so it 
always surprised me that he didn't play on the Cinderella albums, but there's a reason, you know, why he didn't. So the early Bon Jovi records. So whether or not you're not a, whether or not you're a fan of Bon Jovi is one thing. The songs, you know, a lot of people like them. They sell a lot, but famously there, the bass player who played on all the records is now the guy that's in a band. I can't remember his name, but they had the guy on stage, the guy on stage, Alec John Such, who apparently wasn't very good, but they had the right look for the 80s, right? Right. And I, I believe the keyboard played a lot of the bass parts with his left hand because the bass player wasn't that great from, from what I understand. And I found out something really interesting that I didn't know. The first Bon Jovi record, the whole album was that band except for the song Runaway because they liked the demo so much that they used the demo on the record. And it was Tim Pierce that played guitar on it and played the solo. And one of his lessons on YouTube, he actually plays the solo and then talks about, oh, I was into this kind of playing and that's why I use these riffs and stuff. And it's a great solo. I remember thinking like, damn, this guitar player is really good. And then the next record, I was like, well, he's all right, you know, but like that Runaway solo, I was always blown away by and then I find out it's not Richie Sambor, it's Tim Pierce. <laughs> Go figure. So if if you're if you're out in LA and you like the sound of a record or you like a certain playing and you presume it's the band and then you want to have that guy come and guest, you know, but it's he's not the guy that played on the record, that's got to be like a weird thing then, right? I mean, how does that work? I, I don't know. <laughs> you know, um I I mean, well, the thing is, is a lot of those bands too, like, I mean, I toured with Warrant and I watched the guitar players play the solos note for note. So they can obviously play, you know, but they, they didn't play on the record. So, you know, I guess there's a proficiency there. So they got to be confident enough to get up there and do what they're doing. But I feel like I'm veering off your question, but that, you know, that I don't, I don't really know. Yeah. It's just, it's such a strange dynamic. And I think most people don't understand. I don't know if it's still true, but certainly I've read enough books and stories about back in the day where you could be a band that the label liked, but once you signed, the label could turn you into whatever they felt like was going to make them money, right? Oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, the Bang Tango, you know, I mean, uh, Great White. You know, I mean, bands, they just like great white. Like I, I just saw a video of them playing the cat club uh, the other night and they were just like kind of a rock band in jeans and T-shirts. And then their first record comes out and spiked hair and headbands and all this stuff. So it's like, you know, I, I remember in the 80s that the image was a big, big part of it. You know, like it, it matters just as much that you look cool, you know, and I mean, you know, I mean, it, it, how much the label in A&R has a, a, a stake in it is because they want you to succeed and they think they know, but sometimes you got to trust the artist, you know, and, and sometimes it works out. Sometimes it doesn't, you know, I, I don't know if I ever told you uh, Lauren, the, the guitar player in, um, in uh, little Caesar, he, he, he's a great example. He has this band that's been around since the sixties, the dogs, and they're great. They're super respected in the punk world. They've played, you know, all over the world. They've played Japan and they've played all over Europe and, and they've had some really high-profile shows. They opened for Van Halen in the club days. Uh, Sid Vicious got up on stage with them. But they had a they had a, a pretty big manager who was set on getting them a record deal and was sure it was going to happen. And they got a gig, booked three nights at the Whiskey A Go Go, opening up for this new band from Australia, doing their debut appearance in, in 1978 at the Whiskey. They were called 
ACDC, I think was the name of them. <laughs> but uh, Bon Scott and Lauren hung out and drank Jack. But the manager said, okay, here's the, the second night of it or the third night of it. We're bringing out Sony and all these big labels. You know, Atlantic is coming and we're sure we're going to get you guys a deal. But you have to do us a favor. Your look is not what we want to be a punk look. We want you guys to really go out and, and you know, wear the buttons and the, the mohawks and, like, try to be super punk. If I remember the story correctly, it was something along those lines. And Lauren basically is a rebel. He was like, fuck you guys. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And so they went out that day and found white suits, all white suits. And then <laughs> for whatever reason, they went around in the mud. So they had muddy white suits and that's what they went up and played in. And he goes, you know, to this day, he goes, I still wonder what would have happened if I listened to him and did that thing. When we got a deal, would we have been big? He goes, but you know, I'll never know because we stuck to our guns and we were like, you know, screw you guys. We're not doing what you tell us we need to do to succeed. We're doing what we as a band believe we need to do to be successful. And, right. and that's that. What you got to do? There's always the, there's always that trade-off. There's always the what if. So let's do a what if for you. So if Mariah, would, who came close, your band out in L.A., you came close uh, to, to getting a deal. If you had gotten the deal and they had said, okay, we're ready to go in the studio, but we're going to bring in this songwriter, and when we go out on tour, you're going to tour with this band, and you're going to wear these clothes. Would you, you personally, not speaking for the rest of the guys, but would you have been okay with all of that? Uh, for my first deal, I think I was kind of ready to, to fight certain things and be open to certain things. You know, like the, the, the management company that was helping us get this big record deal was already talking to songwriters to help us write songs. And I was kind of open to it because I was kind of writing everything and I felt like everything's starting to sound the same. So it would be cool to have somebody help. Um, our image was definitely, we were veering away from the glammy thing that we kind of moved out there. Like the first couple shows, we were like super glam. And then we realized everybody's glam. So let's just try to be ourselves. And we kind of dressed you know, a little more street, if you will, <laughs> around the Guns N' Roses time, you know, we started wearing jeans and, and like, you know, cowboy boots and shit like that. So we were in the process of, of changing our style. So I think we would have probably held fast and been like, no, we have to be like this now, which I, I don't know if that would have worked, you know? So, right. Right. I mean, I, I, I Ox House Mob too, and it's a big what if for me. It's like we had a record deal with a major label that was excited. We had a Stevie Wonder tour set to go, and Doc was insistent that 13 members be signed to the record deal, and that's that, which just is not reality. And it's like, I wonder what would have happened if he just said, because I know the five of us that talked, the core guys, we were all like, screw it, let's do it. And I know Doc was like, well, I don't want to have to pay everybody else, you know, like, because that was basically what was going to happen is all these members have to be paid not by the label, but by Doc himself. Right. And he was just like, screw it. So, I mean, I get hit where he was coming from, but I think, I don't know, I think we could have really done something great. So, I don't know. So, let's jump ahead now to the Hard Edge Tour. So this yeah. was what mid '90s in your career, and let's let's talk about what that was. So this was uh, I, okay. So this was uh, two albums later in Bang Tango. Okay, so we towards were, the uh, end of your run, towards the end of your run, really with Bang Tango, was, right? This was kind of the last tour I did with Bang Tango because it just it, it kind of fell apart. Not the band, but the tour fell apart, and when we got back. Uh, one of the members drug addiction just was, was really bad. And 
it got to the point where I just couldn't deal anymore. So it was basically, this was kind of my last hurrah with, with Bang Tango. But it was nice because we were going out in support of a couple records and we were going out with some big bands. It was going to be Pretty Boy Floyd opening the show and then Enough's Enough, Bang Tango and um, the Bullet Boys. And the deal was when we signed the contracts and got the tour all booked was that everybody was going to take turns playing in different slots. So it would be like a rotating headliner tour. You know, one night it would be it would be uh, Pretty Boy Floyd. And then the next night would be the bullet. And, and basically we, we were all meeting at a hotel, um, the Beverly Garland famous hotel over in studio city, right off the one Oh one and all four tour buses were there. We were meeting there and then we were taking off for Las Vegas, Nevada. Cause that's where the first show was. And we had a coin toss and whoever lost the coin toss or the bet or whatever it would be would have to pick up Jerry Miller, who is the she was the editor of Metal Edge magazine because she was doing a feature on this tour and on all the bands. So she was going to ride on the tour bus. So three tour buses were going to head to um, <laughs> Las Vegas and one tour bus was going to go pick up Jerry Miller. Well, guess which band had to go pick up Jerry Miller? <laughs> Yeah, so, and she happened to live in like West Hollywood down all these little streets and we're going to tour bus. We're like driving down sunset going, this is going, this is going to be crazy. So, <laughs> so, but when we meet in the parking lot, before we even decided who's picking up Jerry Miller, the bullet boys basically said, we're going to leave this tour unless we headline the entire thing. We have to be the headlining act. So when they said that, Everybody's like, fuck that. No way. We're all going to do something. So instead of Enough's Enough saying, yeah, screw that, Enough's Enough said, well, we have to go on right before the bullet noise every night. So that's how it's going to be or we're not going to do the tour. So like in two minutes, the tour was about to fall apart. So basically we went, yeah, and we told Pretty Boy Floyd, you know what? We'll switch with you guys every night. You guys open one night. Well, so we actually made a deal with them just to be cool, you know, because we were like, screw it. Wow. Let's let's. Let's, you know, let's be, be cool with our fellow bands. These, they're going to be like, you know, egomaniacs and we'll be, we'll be the cool guys, you know, opening up the night. So the pretty boy Floyd guys ended up being really cool. And, and, and we did that. So, so the next thing we do is we go pick up Jerry Miller in, in West Hollywood and we finally get on the one one and we're going on second that night. So we're not, you know, it's a, it's a three, four hour ride. So we know we'll have some time when we get there, it's Vegas, everything starts a little later. So as we're driving across the desert, it's, you know, this is an August end of July, first week of August was when this tour started. And it was seriously 125 in the desert. And we're all on the tour bus, just chilling and she's interviewing us or whatever. And we're like, you know, taking pictures and it's all going cool. And all of a sudden, man, it's getting warm on this bus. This is weird. It's getting warm. What's going on? driving a little more. Now we're sweating. We're like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> now we're out in Baker. We're basically like an hour away from Vegas, hour, hour and a half away from Vegas, two hours out of LA. And it's the hottest place in the country, basically. And it's seriously like 125. We see they have a huge thermometer and everything. And the bus driver pulls over to get gas and goes, guys, you're not going to believe it. Our AC is broken. I can fix it when we get to Vegas before we go to Arizona because I know how crazy it's going to be. He goes, but there's nothing I can do. You're just going to have to suffer. He goes, I can drive with the door open to get some wind, which was like a blow dryer, you know. <laughs> and so we bought all this ice and we just tried to do whatever we could to, you know, keep it as cool as we could till we got to Vegas. And we had hotel rooms there. So we were fine as far as that. But and we were banned and we were like, dude, we've dealt we've been stuck in snowstorms. We've had we've had it way worse than 100 degrees. But 
we now had Jerry Miller on the bus who was not ready for this. And she like literally was like bright red and looked like she was going to fucking die. She had to like lay down in the front of the thing. We had like ice on her head. We're like trying to fan her. We're like, great. You know, we got the editor of the big rock magazine and she's going to die on our tour bus before we even get there. And we basically finally get to Vegas and just go straight to the hotel and check her in and like put the AC on in a room and just leave her in there. And we're still dying, but we got to get on the bus and head over to the venue now. So I'm like dying of sweat and and we get to the venue and luckily it's Vegas, they got the, the AC on inside and we get there with plenty of time to, to get ready for the show and play. That is pretty awesome way to, you have really good ways to start these tours. Drummers quitting like on the eve and then this thing, it's, it's pretty, pretty awesome. I, I want to ask, right. so for, for the, the, the agreement at the beginning in the parking lot, was that all of the Bullet Boys or was that lead singer syndrome for deciding that? I'll leave that up to you, but I think you've answered your question when you said the, the lead singer syndrome. But I have to tell you, you know, it was him who was putting the stink up, but um, Lonnie, the original bass player, was right behind him in the, in the hey, man, we sold a million records on our first one. None of you guys sold that much. We had three number one videos in MTV. We opened up for this. We had Ted Templeman produced our route. What did you guys have? We were on Atlanta. It was seriously like a like a list of all their accomplishments and no one else is half as good. Yeah, because uh, the rest of you are all bums. So that's that's pretty funny. But it wasn't, so Mick Sweeta wasn't in the band at this point, right? Yeah, uh, this was the first tour with DJ Ashba. It's the first tour he ever did as a guitar player, as a professional guitar player. He was fresh out of Indiana. And uh, super cool dude. You know, he was super nice. And uh, we got along great on the tour. He was cool. And their drummer, Dave Moreno, uh, who plays in a lot of big bands these days. He, he was, he was a great guy too. So, and, and you know, I, I have to say Lonnie and Mark had been nothing but gracious to me. They were super nice guys to me. And, you know, I mean, I like to hang out and hang on their bus and chill with them. You know, Mark was such an idiot. He would crack me up. You know, he was like, you know, as much of an egomaniac as he was, he could actually have <laughs> moments of levity and just be a pretty funny guy. And, obviously can sing his ass off too. <laughs> so how long, how long did the tour last in total and did it actually fall apart or did you guys like make it all the way through? Oh no, the, the tour. It, uh, so, so the first show uh, in Vegas, when we get there was actually really like a, we were excited because the place held like 2000 people. And I'm going to say there was probably three or 4,000 people there. It was like one of those where everybody was pressed against the stage. And like, I couldn't barely even go to the front of the stage because there was so many hands like reaching out. So it was really, it was very fun and thinking, okay, it's going to be like this, you know, this is going to be great. Just like the war, the warrant tour, you know, like, tons of people, big crowds. And the only thing I had happened bad was the very first, uh, um, guitar change I did, I broke a string and my main guitar on my Les Paul and I gave it to the guy who was teching for me and he'd never teched before. He was uh, <laughs> Neal's wife's little brother, Sharice Neal's little brother, Landon. He was a great guy. I loved him. I mean, love this guy. He was amazing, but he'd never changed strings on a guitar before. So I broke my high string and I need my main guitar back. It's, you know, 
big last big couple songs are coming and he didn't wind the string so every time i try to turn the e string it would just go (laughs) i I had to like get another string and change it like right on stage just to get through the whole show and uh he felt so bad after that but it was you know and then i showed him how to change strings (laughs) but it was like that was that was kind of the combination of here i'm having the greatest show ever and then all of a sudden my e string won't stay even like even with tension, like I didn't know what was going on. Um, so that was kind of the beginning of it. So I thought it was going to be great. So we went and did, we, we basically got about a month and a half into a three month tour and uh, everything just kind of fell apart. So I, I don't know where you, there, there's a lot of story in the whole, the whole tour itself that caused it all to fall apart. Um but the main thing that caused it to fall apart was uh, we played Houston and um, Mark was partying his ass off. Mark Terrain, singer of the Bullet Boys. And we were playing uh, at, a, at a big venue where they allowed us to, to stay at this really nice hotel. Like that was part of the deal was like, hey, you get three rooms at this hotel. And this hotel was had a nice restaurant. And the owner of the hotel apparently like flew in on a helicopter breakfast with his wife at this hotel and to been partying all night long with Lonnie. And it was again, you know, Texas in August. So it was 110 degrees out. So Mark just had on cutoff shorts, no shoes, no shirt, no nothing, just cut off shorts. And he walks into the restaurant and the owner was like near the door apparently and stopped him and said, Hey, Hoss, you can't come in here without shirt and shoes on. This is my place. You know, I appreciate it. You just go put something on was, Fairly cool from what everybody else who was with him told me, but called him Hoss. And apparently Mark, who's of uh, Spanish descent, Mexican descent, was took offense and, you know, and lost his fucking mind and grabbed a butter knife off the table and threatened to stab the guy with it. And he was going to eat food. And basically Mark went to a table and sat down and no one would go help him. And then the police showed up and handcuffed him. And our next show was in uh, Lafayette, Louisiana. Was it Lafayette? No, it might have been Baton Rouge. One of those. We had like three shows in Louisiana coming up, and he was in jail. He couldn't make the show that night. So um, so they didn't get paid because they didn't show up, but we got paid. And then the next night, they showed up in Biloxi um, and uh, basically said, you know, we don't have enough money now. We, we didn't get paid for that show there, and we were basically banking on each show's money because – there's a settling every week on Friday. You have to pay your tour bus. You have to pay the tour bus driver. You have to pay for the gas. You have to pay for lodgings. You have to pay your tax wow. every Friday. And then you need to have enough money per diem to survive every day. So the bullet boys basically just said, we're playing Biloxi and we're driving home. See you guys. Good luck. And we called and tried to get the booking agent to keep the tour going. The three bands decided we wanted to do it. But basically, I guess the Bullet Boys were the big draw because all the other clubs basically said, nope, screw you guys. So we basically had to turn around. I think we played like three more shows without the Bullet Boys and then just turned around from, I'm going to say Kentucky. I think we drove back straight back from Kentucky. It took like two days on the tour bus. Wow. That That is the craziest story I have ever heard. Um, but but I want to hear about Enough's Enough then. So they were just normal dudes or? I loved Enough's Enough. Donnie 
he was kind of whatever. He was definitely the lead singer of the band, you know, but he could be a nice guy one-on-one, but when there was a crowd, he definitely wanted, wanted the attention. I became really good friends with Chip. He and I spent a lot of time hanging out. We, we liked the same kind of things, you know? Um, <laughs> so we would hang out and like the same kind of things. Um, <laughs> We would do on that tour, you know, we like write music and jam and we would have fun that way. Um, I remember he hopped up and we did some Zeppelin tunes in like Michigan when we got through there because we definitely did like a zigs. That was the other thing about the tour was the money mattered at each venue because it was so much like a dartboard tour, basically like, OK, you play in Arizona and now you're going to go up to Nebraska and then you're going to go up to Michigan. You're going to play Wisconsin and then Minnesota and then you're going to come all the way down to Florida. It was just like it was kind of crazy how, how it was how it was routed. Um, but, yeah, he and I would have fun and the guitar player. uh John Monaco was an amazing guitar player and a totally quirky, nerdy, like magician guy. He would like do magic tricks backstage and things like that. (laughs) And like I'm a nerd at heart. So I loved hanging out with him for that. And Ricky Parrott, their drummer, rest in peace, was an amazing dude, too. I loved Ricky. He was super funny, good looking guy. Like all the women would be after him. And, you know, and he would just be crazy guy, drummer and super cool guy. So why didn't you so? Uh, Enough's Enough have had a thousand members passing through their ranks over over thirty years. So why were you never in Enough's Enough? That's that's really my question. Well, a Chicago band. I'm not out of Chicago. <laughs> yeah, I guess I guess that's true logistically. Um, right. But but would you have done that had they asked? I don't know. You know, I mean, I, I do like Enough's Enough, but. I, I tend to, you know, I tend to stick with the music that I really enjoy trying to play. And there's definitely some shreddy, tappy moments in Enough's Enough. That's not my thing, you know? I mean, right. like, even though I played in Bang Tango, there was none of that 80s metal, you know? But you can do it. It's not like you can't do it. I know, but it was so, at that era, it was so not cool to do that. And I just never, I, I wasn't feeling it anyways, you know? So that I don't know if I would do it. I mean, I would, I would talk to Chip for sure. Um, you know, I don't know. <laughs> so then speaking of, uh, you get back and now, so the tour's over, it ends prematurely. Uh, because of the Bullet Boys, the beginning and the end were rocky, uh, even though some of the shows in, in the middle were, were cool. Um, oh, yeah. But then were you just like, okay, I'm done now? Or how did, how did you leave Bang Tango, I guess is really the question. I, well, I, I actually was living with the singer and bass player at the time. They, we had a house in uh, Beechwood Canyon, really nice kind of, kind of like a hip area. And um, so we had gigs booked still, and we were doing like fly dates and things like that. Like we'd go to Portland and play or go to Washington and play. So I, I was still active with the band and we were trying to figure out another record. And uh, I was also doing a side band with the singer and bass player. We had uh, um, Brian Forsyth on guitar. We had uh, Chuck Garrick on bass. And um, I can't remember who played drums. I think it might have been Ray Luzari for a little while. And we were called the Vagabonds. And so we play locally and we get um, weekly gigs and we make money that way uh, with uh, with that. We do weekend shows and we had original tunes and cover tunes we do. And it was it was really, really a fun time. Um, And during that time, though, when 
Kyle, Kyle quit uh, the Vagabonds. That was when we got Chuck Garrick, and we also had Sean McNabb in the band at that time too. Um, Kyle had, had unfortunately had a really bad car accident, had a brain injury, and was told like, you know, you can't party anymore, you just can't do it. Well, he went down the the, the bad rabbit hole of partying and, and uh, got addicted to some stuff, and it just got kind of unbearable living with him and. Uh, gigs started being insane like we would book a show headlining at a, a big club and i'd get there for us to go on at 10 30 i'd get there at nine with the rest of the guys and the place would like be sold out there'd be you know 200 300 people there and 10 30 would roll around no kyle 11 would roll around no kyle midnight would roll around he'd show up and we'd be like dude and he'd go why did i even bother showing up there's nobody here what the fuck he'd be like dude we go on <laughs> Clock, 10 30 what are you doing well, well dude I, I had to shower I had to get my makeup right my clothes you know and then I started to leave and I got hungry so I went back home and I made a sandwich and I hung out for a minute because I, I, I thought we were at midnight are you sure like oh my and that's what it got got to be like so it got to the point where he booked a show and didn't tell anybody and I was playing with a blues band as well where I was making money and it was keeping me busy and so I was on stage with this blues band and I got, dude, we got a gig at 10 o'clock. Are you going to be there? I'm like, wait, what? And he's like, yeah, we got a gig. I just booked it. We're going to play at 10 o'clock tonight in Pasadena. And I'm playing in Santa Monica. And I go, nope, I'm not showing up. So apparently they went with the bass player who showed up because he booked the gig and wanted the money, obviously. And they asked anybody in the crowd if they could come up and play guitar. And apparently a couple people came up and they did some cover tunes so they could get paid. And that was it. And that was... That was that wow. was me quitting Bang Tango, basically. That was me being done with it. <laughs> things, a lot of times things just sort of end not with a bang, but with a series of whimpers, right? Isn't that kind of right. kind of how it goes? Right. Well, the nice thing was the drummer, he at the same time quit the band too, and he was playing with the Chambers Brothers, and he pulled me in on that gig. So I got, you know, I think I got to at least play with a band and do some of the biggest shows of my career after that. So, so then we have that part of the, so the next part of your career we have to talk about still, there's some, some good stories there. I also want to talk a little bit about you being asked to join other bands like bullet boys or love hate who I love. Um, uh, so lots of, still lots of stuff to talk about for everyone out there, but this was sort of the end of this, not sort of, this was the end of Bang Tango. This was the end of this part of your career. Right. Yeah. No, he, Joe, uh, (laughs) so the, the ending, you know, I still played with Joe and the Vagabonds. So I had the blues band, I had the Vagabonds, I had a couple other projects I was doing when I quit Bang Tango. So Joe was like, you know. Not happy that I wasn't doing Bang Tango, but he was still happy we were doing this other thing. And he decided he wanted to put another rock band together because Bang Tango was making him crazy, too, with Kyle being, being you know, flaky like he was. And, and luckily, Kyle got help and is doing great these days. But um, but uh, Joe was like, I'm going to do a hard rock band. And I was like, OK, I'll do it. And then I got really busy with the blues band. We were making decent dough and I was playing all the time and the Chambers Brothers thing had just started and I was like you know what I just don't have time uh, between the Chambers Brothers playing every weekend and playing three nights a week with this blues band I'm not going to bother with the Joe thing and it ended up being beautiful creatures he put together and the last time I actually talked to Joe I mean I've talked to him since but the last time I talked to him in that era 
he called and left a message and said, hey, Mark, you're a big Kiss fan, I remember. We're opening for Kiss. Too bad you quit the band and didn't want to do it with me or something along those lines. And I was like, wow. And he actually called other people and did that same thing, I found out. That he like rubbed in the, you don't want to play with me, but, you know, we got a record deal and we're opening up for Kiss. And I was like, wow, that's a dick move. (laughs) That is a a strong dick move. Uh, Well, thanks. That was, those were some very, very good stories. And this is the reason why we do the podcast, because this stuff, most people don't get to hear about all of this craziness, butter knives in Houston restaurants. So I think it's, I think it's really fun. Uh, We'll continue to do them. I want to thank everybody who's listening. Please like and subscribe the podcast. Please contact Mark if you want lessons. Uh, I recently started learning how to play slide, which I'm already really terrible at. So thank you, Mark, for for teaching me to be a little bit less terrible at slide. (laughs) 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 Um, Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks, Mark. Thank you, Paul. We'll see you.